Welcome to Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? Ing Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. J. Cody Nielsen, founder and executive director of Convergence and the current director of the Office of Spirituality and Social Justice at Dickinson College. It's not just that the denominations don't see the importance, it's that the institution has failed to be the advocate for too long for what you all bring to the table that is imperative to the climate of the campus. And it is imperative not just for things like faith formation and discipleship and things like that. And it is this whole construct that is sort of crumbling around us in sometimes too fast of a rate that the institution now has to come to the table and maybe the only thing that saves the field of campus ministry from obscurity. Ing host Allison Moss and myself will be sitting down with Cody to learn more about what it means to engage faith on college campuses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ing Podcast. Today, I am here with Dr. Cody Nielsen, who is the director of Convergence. And given that Allison and I both have campus ministry experience, we thought we'd share the hosting duties today. Welcome, Cody. Hi, thank you for having me here on the show today. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what Convergence is? Sure. Um, So Convergence, or our legal name, uh, is Convergence on Campus, is a social change organization that is primarily focused on higher ed institutions in the United States and Canada and what we call religious, secular, and spiritual equity. So our focus is on institutional policy, on practices within the field of higher education as it pertains to religious identities and how to support those, and also research that is uh, present in the field to sort of demonstrate the need of religious equity practices and policies. So when you were dreaming up this convergence on campus, what were the needs that you saw and how are you filling them through convergence? In the sort of interfaith work um, that um, has sort of existed as the in the early 21st century, a lot of the time and energy has been focused mostly on interfaith dialogue, on sort of the, the common bridge building um, pieces that you see sort of If you're looking at uh, the work that's out there, there's a lot of service project and sort of civic engagement that has been utilized um, to build bridges across traditions. Our focus um, and our need that we saw was not just about the dialogue between people to find commonalities, but really within the systems and structures of the institutions that were that we're seeing our students beyond our individuals be in, if you're looking out at the broader world. Does that have to do with the sort of spaces that currently exist out there? Those institutions have yet to create um, 
changes to their environments that are driven by policies and practices. So Convergence came onto the scene in 2017 with a specific focus, and that is to essentially professionalize the field of higher education by illuminating to those professionals and administrators who hold the power to change the policies and practices that drive the institutional climate of the disparity that exi- that exists. So, oh, okay. you know, for example, many of our institutions um, currently are seeing drastically increasing numbers of Muslims, of Hindus, of Jewish identifying individuals coming onto the campuses in ways in which um, we have not seen before. The demographics of the American landscape are drastically shifting. And yet, our institutions of higher ed are often not including the dietary options that are necessary, like kosher options, halal options, and sometimes even further afield are lacto-vegetarian options that, of course, many of the Hindu population um, abides by in their dietary restrictions. So in order to get to that point of helping people to recognize that, we have to both professionally train them, hold them accountable for those practices and procedures and help them understand why they've never really talked about them, discussed them, or thought that they were an important part of the work, which is a sort of moving through the implicit biases of the institutions and of the individuals themselves. So that's really our focus point is about, you know, those addressing needs that really affect every single student on a campus, not just focusing on individual peer-to-peer relationships. And I'm curious why why focus on college institutions, um, university institutions? What impact do you think this work with institutions will have on our, you know, broader communities? A lot of folks would, you know, have asked if we would focus more on the sort of broader, you know, the broader environment. And we do touch a little bit on businesses, corporate, nonprofit um, settings. But the American landscape, um, and I would argue that the Western landscape, um, arguably is driven by the societies and the cultures that we first create in the micro culture of the college experience. Now, I recognize that that is in many ways a privileged statement to make. There are multitudes of Americans who have, as of yet, um, do not have access to higher education, cost barriers, socioeconomic statuses that are hindering um, hindering their ability to, to gain access to higher education. That's an issue for us to take up, to create more equitable means, lower costs, and free college to... Um, deal with the structural and systemic racial tensions that we see that marginalize community colleges and and make them in in the eyes of many um many folks lesser colleges but the reality is is that there are nearly 18 million college students on our campuses in the united states alone today over 4300 institutions of higher education and the millions of college students who even today are currently in class or paying tuition Um, for college um, post-secondary education um, right now. Historically, we see that large social movements and significant social movements, you see things like the civil rights movement or the Vietnam era protests, or even women's suffrage, and especially like the LGBT rights movement, many of them have started 
on our college campuses and have been driven by that generation of, of individuals and students who demand change at fundamental levels. Oh, okay. Currently, alongside religious, secular, and spiritual identities, which is what we use as a nomenclature for a work, we see the work around disability rights being bubbled further and further up within higher ed institutions. So our focus on higher ed is actually to capture the moment that is perhaps one of the greatest cultural shifting variables in our society, because what we produce on our college campuses, what the vessel of college um, demonstrates, what our values are, and, and what ways in which we practice ourselves as a, as a, as a society on our college campus will echo out to the rest of our society. So, you know, one quick example. You have a peer, that peer is Muslim identifying. You notice that they are praying in the closet um, or praying in a hallway space on your college campus. Um, Over time, you work with them um, and you work with the Muslim Student Association and the Muslim Student Association advocates for better prayer and meditation spaces on campus, and they get exactly what they're asking for, which is a hopeful thing because there's lots of challenges to this right now. But then, having seen that your peer or colleague or you yourself have um, have experienced a positive environment on campus, you go out into the the rest of the world and you're working in your business or you're working at a law firm or you're, you know, you're going out and maybe you're working in a hospital setting or you're, you know, working in whatever institution that you're working. And you recognize that once again, your peer or you yourself are struggling to find spaces to have prayer, meditation, reflection. You are much more likely having experienced that college experience that that college environment to advocate on behalf of your peer to recognize the disparity that exists if you were given the opportunity to see it in a robust and equitable manner during those formational years of college and thus you become much more of an advocate for the cause you definitely see the environment as it could be and then you see the environment as it has been and it potentially gives more opportunity for us to be advocates for the cause and if you do that with 18 million students at a time over not too long of a time you start to populate to those those tipping point numbers that you're looking for to be able to shift shift not only the mindset but the environment of our society itself. And so um, we really truly believe that higher education is the vessel and the key to which we can produce the society and the world that we want. We just have to do it not at a peer-to-peer rate experience, but we have to do it at a holistic experience so that an individual who has no particular interest in religious identity or in a particular form of religious practice still sees their peers practicing that and being given permission. And in fact, not just being given permission, but actually being given voice and space to advocate and to practice as is, as it is given as we've been given rights for it echoes out within our society broad based. And honestly, if we don't do it in college, 
the possibility of us losing people into the milieu of the larger world without ever thinking about their peers um, who are facing discrimination, marginalization, and bias is much more likely to, to occur. I think it's easy for those of us who had a good, positive, healthy campus ministry experience in college to look back on the system and say, well, nothing's really wrong. Um, what are you trying to fix a problem that's not really there? Um, how do you, what do you say to that sort of a question? The folks that are coming, um, that are on this podcast, that are coming out of traditional base campus ministries. You know, I was a campus minister for a while. You know, I was a Methodist clergy, um, still am, but I, I worked in that external based um, campus ministry world. Um, our campus ministries are, are, are being eradicated by our institutions, our, our faith communities who no longer see them as viable or, or don't understand their viability or their importance. At the same time, I'm sitting here on the other side of the fence, mostly coming from a higher ed lens, talking about how to get higher ed to pay attention to this topic. And, and, and it seemingly feels like it's, it's, it's an attention-filled world. And a lot of campus ministers that I've spoken with over the years are like, oh, the institution doesn't care about us. They don't really want us on campus and things like that. And for me, the campus ministry spot is the spot that just is the punching bag for everyone. The denominations don't think that you're important. And the institution doesn't think that you have any idea what they're talking about and any importance whatsoever. My job And I think the job of all of us to work together, and I want to talk to anybody that listens to this podcast that wants to work on this, is to figure out the narrative to both sides. And I'm over here working with the administrators in higher ed to help them understand the importance of this topic so that we can look to the campus ministers and folks that are doing this from the external base work and to demonstrate the importance of your work to the institution. And from that too, the institution can better have a narration to your denominations to why you are necessary on campus. And and my analogy to this is that if the institution understands the importance of campus ministry and religious life in general, they can set a proverbial dining room table that has seats for the Methodist and the Lutheran and the Mennonite and the Baptist and the Jew and the Muslim and can set that table. Mm-hmm. And any time a denomination, any time a tradition says, well, this work really isn't important, we can't financially support this, that dining room table doesn't lose a seat, it loses a person at the seat. And if the institutions recognize it enough and understand the construct and the system of that, they can become the advocates to say back to the denomination, don't you dare take away the Methodist campus minister or don't you dare take away the Mennonite campus minister. And to be honest, I think that's one of the things that's failing our campus ministries is that it's not just that the denominations don't see the importance, it's that the institution has failed to be the advocate for too long for what you all bring to the table that is imperative to the climate of the campus. And it is imperative 
not just for things like faith formation and discipleship and things like that, but it is imperative for the retention rates of our students and the student satisfaction rates on our campus. And it is that stuff that we are not paying enough attention to. And it is this whole construct that is sort of crumbling around us in sometimes too fast of a rate that the institution now has to come to the table and maybe the only thing that saves the field of campus ministry from obscurity because they will have recognized what is missing when it's not there. Mm. Mm. You're making me uh, miss my campus ministry context. (laughs) Thanks for that. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit of just like the history that, you know, student movements have the the power to, you know, move toward change. And um, you mentioned like women's suffrage and, you know, we could say for LGBTQ people, lots of different things. So it seems to me that you're saying there's a gap between, you know, the student, the student movements, the student even identity maybe and like needs and the institutional structures that, you know, would support students. So is, is that true? Um, what are, if so, what are those gaps and, you know, what might they look, look like for those who are maybe less versed at noticing them? Sure. Um, so this is a really important question because it actually goes back to some of the fundamental challenges and I would say flaws of the institution. So recently I was in a conversation with, um, with a major foundation around funding um, for our organization. And the question of demand came up. Um, so most of our work is presented mostly to faculty, staff, and administrators, um, trying to bring them into our professional trainings. Often people are like, well, do you work with students? And our response is, we work with student leaders, but we do not ask students to bear the responsibility of these needs. In fact, the opposite should be true. And in fact, the argument could be made that we've been letting administrators off the hook with our current practices in the interfaith movement on campus for far too long by asking students to take all of the responsibility of what are enormously big issues and concerns. Here's what those issues and concerns really look like. As the American landscape is changing demographically, we are seeing massive increases, as I said before, of religious identities changing. There's a lot of people that think that religion is leaving, that, that, that America is becoming more secular. That is only part of the story. America is being more, becoming more secular or non-religious amongst Christians, and we all know that if we come from a Christian identity, because I feel like it's the second most heard thing after all the faith communities are closing and running out of money, is that people from this younger generation are rapidly leaving the church. How do we get them back? I think what you have in there is a misunderstanding and a, a misread of how religion is shifting in the United States from being monolithic with few sprinkle salt and peppering of other traditions to being much more pluralistic in the sense that we are seeing huge numbers of Hindus, 
large populations of Sikh identities, um, large populations of Buddhists, um, and also obviously growing numbers of Muslims and stable numbers of Jews um, across the country. Within higher ed, there is a lack of recognition of this taking place. And institutions are sort of brushing that aside. There is very low demand from the administrators and staff to take this seriously, but yet the demographics and the voices of those who are most impacted, which are mostly marginalized religious identities and non-religious identities, are saying, maybe without overt words, because it's hard to break through the, the, the voice of the sort of institution itself, but they're saying with their feet by enrolling on college campuses and by practicing their own traditions that there is huge need. And so what we're talking about is about environmental conditions that demonstrate institutions' commitment to identity. So are there uh, flashpoints that you can point to where you say sort of this is the crux of, of, of when a shift occurred? As the country started to move toward LGBT identities as being much more prevalent in our society or much more open in our society, the country created and the higher education created LGBT centers to respond to those needs. Um, there have been huge amounts of movement building, um, literacy around the LGBTQIA plus um, identities movement that have that have been fostered on campus over the last 30 to 40 years. And arguably, the generation of college students that started going to college around 2000 may have been the most pivotal shifting point to lead toward not only the Obama administration changing their mindset around LGBT marriage and equity of sorts, but also leading toward the Oberfell um case um, that, of course, now has granted marriage rights to LGBTQIA identities across across the United States. When we look at this on a practical level around religious equity, there are certain components that are being left out. We talked about the prayer and meditation and reflection spaces. Oftentimes, in institutions of higher ed will sort of throw together because Muslim students, who are the most prominent voices around prayer and reflection spaces um, right now on campus, they will throw together a prayer space for Muslims. Sometimes those spaces are in the most dilapidated buildings, in the sub-basement, low lighting. Nobody knows where they are. They're not accessible if you have, um, if you have ability, disability um, concerns around uh, being able to access space. Um, but they're also struggling to understand that Hindus, Buddhists, and other practicing traditions also have prayer, meditation, and reflection spaces. Um, there is an argument to be made that an institution of higher ed who actually create a Muslim prayer space without creating prayer spaces and reflection spaces for others are actually just moving the establishment clause to a different religious tradition, one that has historically been mostly focused on Christian Christians, um, could very quickly be deemed as an establishment of bias toward Muslims without supporting others. Can you tell us just a little bit about the specific pieces that you're imagining here? So prayer, meditation, reflection spaces are one piece. Another piece that we already alluded to, the need for dietary options. Those are critical. 
Um, what better way and what more optimal way can you show and demonstrate value than demonstrating within your dining halls and your, and your food options for students the values that we place by having those options available and not just othering them by placing them off, but in incorporating them into the standard practices of the institution. Um, the other one that's probably most prevalent in this conversation, and there are more that I can talk about, um, is the religious calendar accommodations. So we know that in our society, Christmas is a day off, and people say, it's a federal holiday. Why is it a federal holiday? Why is Easter a federal holiday? Because we live in a Christian hegemonic environment. That does not mean that to be Christian is wrong or bad. It simply means that as a Christian, and if you're listening to this podcast and you are a person of the Christian faith, you you know that your right is already upheld. Now, What's funny about this is that if you if you look at it and you say Christmas is absolutely upheld for me, you're Protest, probably Protestant or Catholic. If you're an Orthodox or a Coptic Christian listening to this podcast, you might be skeptical that your Christmas or your Easter is actually equitably upheld because Coptic and Orthodox Christians celebrate Easter and Christmas on a different day. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, of course, I've never had to take a test. I've never been forced to take a vacation day or go to work on Christmas Day or on Easter, um, which is, of course, on Sunday. So it's a little bit different. But Christmas is definitely the Christian holiday um, that sort of stands out as the one in which we never have to take off for. Now imagine being Muslim or being Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist or any of these other traditions and imagine being in the classroom and being told by your faculty, the person that you look up to, the person that you as a college student might even be fearful of, depending on the sort of, you know, the way in which we sort of imagine like faculty to be. And you approach them to tell them that you're going to be gone for class or that you need to miss class for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. And they tell you there's a test on this day and you say, but my religious practice is supposed to be upheld and I need to go to, I need to go to the mosque or I need to go to the synagogue. And they tell you that if you miss this class, you fail this test and there's no makeup. Now, one of the things that happens is that students don't even speak up out of fear or out of complicit compliance, which is a form of ways in which marginalized identities sort of self-regulate to not expect accommodations. What's worse about it is when a faculty tells somebody that they can't miss this test, whether they are at a public or a private institution, they are in violation of the First and the Fourteenth Amendment. Their legal rights are being failed by them. Now, who in the institution is being accountable for that. If people say faculty have discretion around how they run their classrooms, faculty discretion does not hold weight against the Constitution. But what is the threat? What is the cost? Most students that are 18, 19, and 20 years old going up against um, a faculty who may be twice or more than twice their age are unlikely to challenge that variant because of the fact 
that they might fear for their scholarship, for their academic success. They may have to pass this test in order to graduate or to move up in their academic performance. This is all an environmental threat. So where are the academic calendar accommodations being made by the institution that are legally there? And that's probably the most critical third piece of that. And that's part of what Convergence is after, is to make sure that those calendar accommodations are there. We're going to take a quick break now to thank our sponsors and invite you to consider sponsoring Ing Podcast. You can also play a big part in helping us spread the word about this podcast by giving our new Facebook page a like and sharing your favorite Ing Podcast episodes with friends, encouraging them to subscribe and join this movement of leading, growing, and being as people of faith. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring, and with help from Everence. Many of us are taking it day by day, step by step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everance.com. So, Cody, I'm curious, are there ways that you're imagining some of these changes taking place in our society? We've actually gone so far as to pass a state law in Washington state, which we are mirroring across the country, that mandates universities add religious accommodation policies into the syllabi. And in Washington state, um, the bill that we passed affected over 700 post-secondary institutions and over 400,000 students. And it was... um, first implemented last year. So it's been in, in, in effect for almost 18 months. And those accommodation policies sit on the syllabi very much in the same vein as we see ADA standards around accessibility. Um, and they demonstrate the institution's values and demonstrates that the institution holds a commitment to it. Now, that might be a forced commitment for some institutions by a state mandate, but we are demonstrating commitment. And that fundamentally changes the way in which the conversation between that faculty and that student goes, because if it's on the syllabus and a faculty says, no, you can't be off for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or any one of the religious holidays that we can think of, well, not only does the student have a case made to them by the syllabi, but they also know that there is some form of mandate. Maybe they don't know that it's a state law, that it's on the form, but they know that it's there. And until those rights are upheld and until those systems are in place, discrimination will be on a case-by-case basis and will be left to the staff, faculty, and administration to resolve But in many cases, they're not even being brought up because of the power dynamics that we see. And so it goes back to the sort of fundamentals of policy and practices and why it has to be about the administrators taking responsibility and not the students. Because whether or not the students have power in huge numbers, that's one thing. And those has been a way in which we've created societal movements before. But the other approach is the one in which we hold irons to the fire of the administration because the students have already voiced their concerns and the faculty, staff, and administration have yet to actually make those changes that are necessary. 
You mentioned a lot of different power dynamics that are at play in um, in this work. Um, and I, I think one that maybe you more briefly mentioned is the moving away from the mass numbers that, that used to be upheld in Christianity. Um, and so I do feel like there's this defensive posture, especially between the more, you know, amongst the more traditional Christians um, that feel like they are losing power and they are reacting to that. Maybe that's one question or one <laughs> thing you can comment on. But I think the other part of that is asking the question, and I almost hate that I have to ask this, but, you know, why should people who come from more traditional Christian practices that, you know, we don't have to worry about our um, Christian ritual holidays um, being affected as much, Um why why should we we care about this work? That's um, a really good question. Yeah. And you answered it in the way in which you asked the question, Allison. Why should you care? If you don't care, if it's not a value to you, that's your privilege. And I think that's the first thing that we need to talk about is checking our privilege. We are seeing in our society what happens when people who are well-intentioned don't check their privilege? We see George Floyd be murdered. We see Philando Castile be murdered. We see Tamir Rice be murdered. We see Michael Brown be murdered. How long will it take in our society for us to recognize that our privilege is actually at the root of what allows these things to not change and for us to see more and more people be murdered around the issue of racism. Now, you might say, what does racism or what does the move toward Black Lives Matter or what does George Floyd have to do with religious marginalization? And this is the hard pill to swallow. This is the one in which you need to take a deep breath before I say it. Almost every form of marginalization in this country starts by the white starts by looking at the white Christian privilege that this country is founded on. Historically, Protestants in America tried to build this country in a way that privileged them and marginalized everyone else. First it was the Catholics. Then it was the Jews, then it was the Mormons, then it was everybody else, and currently it is mostly focused on Muslim identities. Now, privilege is the ability to not have to care about someone else. But justice and equity is the moment in which we recognize that our power is in our voice to displace ourselves from our privilege, from to displace ourselves from recognizing that just because we have freedom doesn't mean everyone is free. And I think that's the thing. No one is free until everyone is free. If you're listening to this and you are steeped in the work of Paul Freire, 
and his classic pedagogy around the power about the pedagogy of the oppressed, you might recognize that that privilege comes from the oppressor being very complacent in their systems and structures because they hold all the power in this situation. We who have privilege, we who have never felt marginalization or never felt that we had to worry about our own Christian holidays, we hold all the power. The moment that we hear the narrative of those that come from what Freire describes as the oppressed narrative, we recognize that we really aren't free. And if we're willing to go inside of ourselves and to get to the heart of the matter, we start to recognize the privilege that we have and the complacency we have to not move or the fear and defensive posturing that we have that others might actually gain power is is actually the form of the oppressor rooting, I would argue, in our ego itself, that we control the narrative and to let go of the narrative is us reducing power. It's not. And here's why. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor preventing the free exercise thereof. Those 16 words are the very tenet through which we are able, as a country, to practice our religion. We're not living in what England was. We're not living in what Saudi Arabia is. We're not living in many of the environments where there is a nationalized religion. Even places like Norway have a nationalized religion in the form of Lutheranism. But... When you think about the privilege that you have, the privilege that you have is built on that First Amendment structure. And furthermore, by the 14th Amendment and what John Bingham did to make sure that the 14th Amendment meant that federal policies applied to the states as well. When we look at religious minorities and we talk to religious minorities and we ask them what the First Amendment means to them, it may or may not mean anything to them because until they actually see in that language their own rights being upheld, then it's just more of the same language. And so as a Christian, if you read the First Amendment and you feel free to practice your religion and you don't actually have the conversation with those who are not Christian, and hear how they don't feel like the First Amendment is actually upholding their religious tradition. And maybe it is to a certain point, but not comprehensively, not like you. You don't have to take off a vacation day from work for your religious holiday. You don't have to constantly dictate to to a manager or to explain to your colleagues why you have the practices that you're having or why and what Diwali is as the festival of lights for the Hindu, Sikhs, um, Buddhists, and Jains across the country. You don't have to explain that um, because Christianity is already explained. You might tell about what you do on Christmas, but you're not you're not arguing to have Christmas. And so, honestly, the step back is 
to recognize your privilege and to say, do you wish to live in that privilege without actually caring about others? And honestly, if you're listening to this podcast and you are like, I don't really have a lot of care and concern about others, then you may one day find that our religious our religious equity is in threat in general because it will be everybody's religious equity, not just those that have come from religious minorities. Because the further and further afield that our country gets around secularization, the more and more we declare that religion is sort of an off-topic conversation or in certain environments that I work in in higher ed where religion is sort of code for ignorance, to be religious is kind of ignorant because it seems to counter with scientific methodology. The longer we do that and don't create an integrative understanding that addresses all forms of equity, all religious identities and equity, and even non-religious equity, we are at threat to our own equity becoming um, in question as the future unfolds. What is giving you hope in the in the work that you have undertaken here like where where are you being inspired in in this kind of a space on campuses so um that's a really great that's a really great question um i think that where i see hope is that as we talk to administrators slowly but surely as if almost like one pebble at a time on the mountain, you know, sort of removing it to try to move it, people are starting to capture that there is something missing from the institution's dynamics around the work of religious, secular, and spiritual equity. Um, I was in a call earlier today with a faculty member who literally remarked on, he said, you know, what you're doing is really important work. And as we've talked to folks, we're starting to get, we're starting to get the feeling that we are on to something that we've believed since we began and that, you know, we built our organization on, but that other people believe in too. Mm. And that is that the interfaith work that has been done is seemingly not enough, that the pedagogy and the methodology that has been approached these last generations of college students, and, you know, I would say that, you know, generation being, you know, four years, four or five years, but like, you know, the last 20 years of a generation of our society, Mm. that that interfaith work that has been done, the focus on dialogue, on discussion, on bridge building, or on service as being this sort of principal way, and that, you know, we only focus on the commonalities, that people, people have a similar hunger to what we have for a critical lens and that it's coming along. I think what we also hear is a recognition in there, not only that, it's, that, that they start to see the issues for what they really are at a systems and structural level, but they also feel incapable or, or at least modestly confused about what to do. And that also gives me hope in a weird way. Because when we built ourselves from the ground up, what we said is, we're not only here to be 
the connected agent to help resource people with small startup, you know, ideas and concepts and help them get on the way. Um, We're here to take them by the hand Mm -hmm. and cross every single finish line that is necessary. And so I tell administrators when we speak to them, if you want to put in these dietary options, if you want to create the academic calendar accommodations, if you want to do any number of things going as far, and this is one of the things we didn't talk about, is creating an office that oversees spiritual and ethical affairs on a campus. If you are willing to go that far, or if you're willing to just imagine for a moment that there may be a need for this, mm-hmm. we will take you all the way. And the moment that that becomes a conversational piece with an administrator where their eyes sort of light up and they sort of smile at you and you feel like there might be a little bit of relief knowing, you know, from them, knowing that they are not going to be asked to do this on their own and that this huge, enormous, taboo topic doesn't have to be solved individually on their own in the midst of all the other like major issues that higher education faces, I think you start to see the hope come. And I think that's where I'm becoming inspired is we're moving slowly but surely from the defensive posture of this isn't a topic that we talk about to this is a topic that we haven't talked enough about and I have no idea where to begin And it's sort of like if you are a mental health therapist and you're helping a client dealing with issues of depression. First, the client has to recognize that they are depressed before they can actually start to move through the processes of getting better. Mm. That's what our institutions of higher ed are at the pivotal moment of, is to move beyond 20 years of focused attention on students as being the pathway to solving what is a huge structural issue to one in which the administrators start to recognize that they hold responsibility. And even if they don't know how to do it, because honestly, most of them don't, they at least are aware that it's time to move past that. And I will take that hope all the way through the process if people will just step into that frame and say, it's past time or it's time and I just need to have guidance on what to do to make this possible. Because with us as an organization and with me, we've committed our life's work to this area so that in 40 and 50 years, we see transformed societies that started in and on our college campuses And I am very, very ready for the administrator who just doesn't know what to do. But the challenge is moving past the administrator who refuses to take this topic seriously. That's definitely a challenge, but I'm glad we have people uh, like you working at this. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for that answer. Cody, thank you so much for being with us today and talking about your work with Convergence on campus. Can you tell us where people can find you, find more info about all the cool stuff you offer through Convergence? Yeah, um, thank you. Um, So we are online um, at www.convergenceoncampus.org. 
um, you are uh, welcome to email me at any time. Any of our staff find more information there. We have a page on Facebook. Uh, just look Convergence on Campus. Um, we have an Instagram and a Twitter account. We should probably use it more. Uh, but uh, those are the two main places to find us, as well as on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, come visit us on the website. Uh, drop me an email. Let's find some time to connect. And uh, we have a robust amount of um materials and resources for folks as they're trying to navigate this challenging and important area of identity. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Cody. Thank you everyone for listening in and we will be back with you again soon. Bye. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support Ing Podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of Ing Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on Ing Podcast? Let us know by emailing theing at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Today's show was produced by me, Ben Weidman. Ing Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.